0: Hey guys, continuing the tradition of unbelievable guests, I don't know how I convinced these guys to come on my show and speak to me, but I managed to convince this gentleman, a former professor, not of mine, but certainly at Cornell, where I trained with a whole bunch of other very famous behavioral decision theorists, Professor Bob Frank. How are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing great, God. Nice to be with you.
0: So nice to talk to you. Uh, So I wanted to just give people a a, a bit of a sense of your biography. It'll take a couple of hours to go through the whole thing, so we'll, we'll, we'll condense into about a minute. So you're the Henrietta Johnson-Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics at the John, uh, Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell. Uh, some of your books include, uh, I'm not going to list some of your textbooks, but some of your popular books, The Economic Naturalist, Passions Within Reasons, The Winner-Take-All Society, fantastic, bo- fantastic book. The, Dar- the Darwin Economy, something that we could talk about given my own evolutionary bent. Luxury Fever, What Price the Moral High Ground, falling behind choosing the right pond and the book that was just released your latest book success and luck good fortune and the myth of meritocracy wow you've been busy (laughs) (laughs) so i thought we'd start with your uh, latest book and then we will sort of head off into other areas maybe you could begin by telling us what is the central premise of your latest book
1: Uh, As you said, God, the title is Success and Luck, and it's about the relationship between those two concepts. And one of the themes is that successful people uh, tend to grossly underestimate the role of chance events in their life trajectories. I think we all tend to do that, but uh, it's, it's important for policy purposes, especially that successful people are even more prone than others to do that. And... Uh, it's it 's not i don 't think because they 're mean spirited or are trying to lay claim to more money than they 're entitled to. I think you know we all uh, use the material at hand when we try to construct our life stories and the The markets that people compete in now, the ones that dole out the biggest prizes, are incredibly competitive. There are often just a handful of slots at the top that means people battle ferociously to occupy those slots. The the people who prevail in those markets really are almost always smart. They're hardworking and talented in various ways. So when they look back after they've made it to the top, they think, well, all right, why am I successful? And they think of all the people who were good that they vanquished along the way. They think of how hard it was to to go through the long day that they went through. They know they're smart. They've been getting feedback to that effect for years and years. And so those are the available building blocks in memory that you use to build your stories. And so naturally they dominate the narratives. Uh, A career consists of thousands of little steps. You know, if any any one of those steps had been different, all the steps after that would have been different in at least some small way. So if, if a random event earlier in your career happens, and that changes your trajectory a little bit. The the changes accumulate over time. The final outcome is just going to almost always be dramatically different from what would have happened except for that little event. So, so those those t- things tend to get short shrift when we build our stories. So, I did it myself. Uh, I'm the sole author of my fate. That t- tends to be the prevalent people think of their lives. That's problematic because if you think that you did it all yourself rather than uh, the the more nearly universally accurate view that yes you were talented, yes you worked hard, and along the way you enjoyed a, a couple of lucky breaks without which you wouldn't have been nearly as successful, your attitude toward paying forward for the next group that comes along ends up being very different. The people who think they did it all on their own are determined to hold on to every nickel. I mean, we we know this from experiments in the laboratory. When people get feedback that makes they think they did it on their own, they they claim a much bigger share of any surplus that's available to share. And so, so over time, people have been much less generous paying forward for the next generation that comes along. We're not investing in infrastructure to the extent we used to. Public schools get much less support than they used to. If you're poor now, if you're a smart kid born to a poor family, you're much less likely to graduate from college than if you're a dumb kid who was born in a rich family. Uh, Nobody sees that figure and says, yeah, that's the way society ought to be. That's a troubling thing.
0: Now, okay, so... That's all good. Let me play devil's advocate. But hopefully in a in a more gentle manner than apparently some of the blowback you've received from some of the folks. I read some of the stories of how people didn't respond very well when you were writing some columns about this <laughs> idea, right? Uh, so I actually, as I was uh, going through your material, I thought of an example. And then I noticed that at the start of your book, you have a quote from Huxley that the bastard already captured what I wanted to say, which basically is... Um, women have, so I'm going to put it in slightly different terms, uh, so women have roughly 400 ova from menarche, from the onset of the menses to menopause, and a single ej- ejaculation of a man has roughly 250 million spermatozoa. So we could, we could unfold luck all the way back to that fateful moment when you, your parents played the Barry White music, got in the mood, and that one particular spermatozoa if that hadn't happened that so i mean so what i'm basically saying i mean life is nothing but a set of path dependent stochastic events leading up to the current event that we're at right uh so
1: that's absolutely correct uh,
0: so then so then i think what you're saying is that let's just be mindful of that fact because by being mindful of that fact maybe it will augment our proclivity to be altruistic to others, right? So, so it's not as though you're saying, uh, look, I'm taking away from all of the earned merit that people have contributed to their lives. You're simply saying by simply being mindful, mm-hmm. I'll be more generous. I mean, is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, we,
1: we know uh, that if you prompt people to think about ways in which they've been fortunate that has a profound effect on their mood, uh, on the emotions they're experiencing at the moment. It makes them happier. That's been shown. Uh, if they feel they've been fortunate, that makes them happy. Uh, if if they experience the emotion of gratitude, that makes them much more willing to incur costs for the common good. Uh, it makes them much more attractive to other people. It's It's kind of at odds with what we teach our students in economics. You've got only so much to spend. If you spend it here, you can't spend it there and so on. If you, if you feel grateful, that seems to open doors and create uh, new surplus for you without using anything up. So if, if you were a successful person, I think you would have every reason if you read the literature to want to feel grateful for whatever lucky breaks you might have enjoyed along
0: the way. So before I get into some of the, uh, the traits that might differentiate between people's proclivities in terms of some of the things that we talk about, I think you talk about sort of political partisanship, whether you're a republic or conservative and liberal. I can maybe propose some other possibilities. I wanted to share one of my own, or of course, we can all generate. You, you shared two uh, morbid instances where you almost uh, died. Uh, and hence you use that as a manifestation of how luck can turn one way or the other. Let me use a slightly happier version and I think it might be the first time that I share this publicly. So here we go. So uh, this this is this is in reference to how I met my uh, at the time future future wife, my current wife. Uh, so I was I headed off to the uh, gym to to exercise and a gentleman sort of walked up to me and as I was exercising he just yells out, you know, "Hey professor" And I say, hi. Another guy who was within earshot whom I had never met approaches me and says, oh, you're a professor of what? So he engages me. I tell him what I'm a professor in. And then it turns out that he is the owner of a company uh, that has a desire to have some in-house executive education. He invites me to teach a bunch of modules on advertising, psychology of decision making and so on. And in that audience was a very young uh, human resources woman, who eventually became my wife. Well, if that guy hadn't said, hey, professor, and it hadn't been heard by this other guy, then we wouldn't have the two lovely children that we currently have, right? So
1: each one of whom was extraordinarily unlikely, (laughs) even though you did meet and marry your current wife.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But so now going back to uh, now you focus, uh, or at least in part, you talk about sort of the the divide along this issue between conservatives and liberals. So first, why did you focus on this particular one? And then can we discuss maybe some other traits that might differentiate how people respond to this effect?
1: Sure. Uh, I don't know if you remember the 2012 uh, presidential and Senate campaigns. There were two speeches that were noteworthy for the reactions they produced. One was by President Obama It came to be known as his, you didn't build that speech.
0: Uh, I do remember.
1: Yeah, he was in Virginia. It was July of 2012. Uh, He he told his listeners that uh, if you're successful, uh, you probably had a a few lucky breaks along the way. You had a great teacher. Uh, Somebody built this amazing American set of institutions that enabled you to succeed once you got your start. Uh, and the point of the, the message, of course, was that, uh, these, uh, breaks that you enjoyed, many of them were expensive to create. If you were born in South Sudan, you don't have these breaks. Somebody had to pay for them. Uh, it's your responsibility going forward to help support the investments that enabled you to succeed in the past. Uh, and, you know, if you listen to the speech, if you go back and you look at the transcript of it, uh, at one point, uh, he does say, and it's too bad, he said, uh, you built a business, well, you didn't build that. Uh, and that if you look at the context surrounding that particular sentence, it's clear he didn't mean you didn't build that. He, he meant you didn't build it all by yourself. You shipped your goods to market on roads, the rest of us helped pay for you. you, hired workers, the rest of us paid to educate, and so on. Uh, and so you, you do have a, a social contract that calls on you to pay forward completely uncontroversial to, to the ears of most people. But uh, that speech, the excerpts from it, they were quoted out of context, went viral. There were millions of angry comments on the internet. Uh, it was mostly right-wing websites that were reacting in anger. Uh, and the the people who had started businesses or the people who knew others who had done so thought that the president was telling them that they didn't deserve to succeed, that they, they didn't really merit the lofty positions that they'd attained. He was saying no such thing, but that was the reaction. And I think the the reluctance to pay taxes has been way more pronounced on the, the right than on the left. It's not, it's not no, you know, nobody likes paying taxes, but I think most people uh, regard this statement we hear, taxation is theft. What, a, what an odd notion. What do they think? We should have voluntary taxation? Yeah, then nobody would pay taxes. Then we wouldn't have a government. Then we'd be invaded by another country that had a government and an army that w- was financed by their taxes. And we'd pay taxes to them. So, you know, there's no issue of whether there are taxes. The only interesting questions are, what do we tax? whom do we tax? How high should the tax be? All, all those questions we should debate. But what we hear instead is uh, they're trying to take my money. Uh, there's no presumption that money you earn in pre-tax terms is yours to keep. That's not, not true in any country. Uh, and so there is a political asymmetry. There are many conservatives who understand the need to pay taxes. There are many liberals who are determined not to pay any and who cheat on their taxes and so on. So it's not a it's not a neat divide, but there is a, a tendency to divide in those terms. And
0: I, I was you know, gonna, I'm sorry, go yeah. We
1: will have a we'll have a better country if we all just sort of step back and recognize, recognize maturely that if we pay taxes and support a vibrant public sphere, there'll be better opportunities for our kids and for everyone else.
0: Right. Well, I guess maybe in a bit we can come back to uh this tax issue because I can share my personal experience in Quebec as someone who probably pays a lot more taxes than probably anybody in the United States. And so we could discuss what might constitute the morally sweet spot of how much of my money should be going to the grand sort of coffer. But anyway, and of course, and that will lead us to a discussion of your progressive consumption tax, which we can talk about. But let's hold off on that for a second. Uh, I, I, I I, I must admit that I didn't yet get through your whole book. So I hope that I'm not going to mention something that you'd sort of discuss later in the book, but uh, I don't think you mentioned a personality trait that I think would help clarify clearly how people navigate through this sort of attribution of internal versus. So just locus of control seems to me. And I remember, I think the first time that I probably heard of that uh, uh, individual difference was in Dennis Regan's course at, at Cornell, Uh, So the idea is, for some of our viewers who may not be familiar with this notion, uh, people who have internal locus of control attribute things internally. I did well on the exam because I'm a smart guy and I studied hard. Uh, People who uh, attribute things externally, well, it was God's will. He didn't want me to succeed. There's some sort of grand fatalistic reason. Now. Most healthy people have the following attribution style. They attribute things, successes internally, failures externally. And the only group that doesn't do that are depressives, clinically depressed people. Uh, And I remember this from Dennis Regan's course. So are we saying that liberals are depressives, Professor Frank? (laughs) The
1: the paper had a great subtitle that showed that originally, sadder but wiser. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Right, exactly.
1: Exactly. no, it's an interesting set of seemingly contradictory beliefs that you have to embrace somehow. One one is that if you're going to be successful, it really isn't adaptive for you to think that luck's a major factor in what happens out there. You want to think, I'm the captain of my fate. Uh, if If I'm going to succeed, it's 100% up to me. If you had a choice to inculcate that message into your children's head or to tell them, look, the world's a lottery, you know, go out, you know, anything could happen, hope for the best. Which would be better? The first message wins hands down. If you want to have a, a, a decent society to live in, uh, you you have to recognize that no one is really the captain of his own fate. I mean, there are so many things that affect how people do in life. It's true. I'm, I'm the first to acknowledge that People who succeed big in life are almost always talented and hardworking. You know, we can find exceptions even to that. You know, you have the lip syncing boy bands. There are some people in finance who've succeeded who, who maybe aren't talented or, or hardworking. But, but basically, they're all good. The, the thing people don't recognize is that there are millions of others who are just as talented or almost as talented, maybe even more talented, work just as hard, maybe even harder. They didn't succeed on any grand scale. And the difference is just a random event here and there in many cases. You know, Brian Cranston. I don't know how how big Breaking Bad got to be in Canada.
0: Yeah, well, I, I watched it late, and then I did the whole you know uh, mass viewing binge binge, 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 watch. binge watching. Oh. Thank you. Yes.
1: Yeah. It it was uh, just. I had an argument with my editor because I included reference to it in the book. I wanted to call it the greatest TV series of all time. No, he wouldn't have that. So it's now in the book perhaps the greatest TV series of all time. Anyway, it was a really good TV series. And Vince Gilligan wanted to cast Brian Cranston as Walter White, the the ailing high school chemistry teacher who who turns into a meth kingpin in order to try to leave some money behind for his family after he's dead. Great performance. Four Emmys in the show's five seasons. He's now the most successful actor in his age group. Everybody wants to hire him for their films.
0: Before you go on, let me interject. Have you heard? Now, I don't know if this is an urban legend. Apparently, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins wrote him a fan letter. Have you
1: heard about this? Yes.
0: Yes, I did. So is, has that been validated, or is it? A yeah, BS- no. That
1: well, I've read the same thing you've read. I don't. I don't know if it's... that
0: must be incredible, right? I've been receiving a yeah, letter. Yeah, like I mean, that. we're wow. talking
1: about serious acting. Cuts. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But look, uh, he he had had no major dramatic role when Gilligan proposed casting him. Uh, I had never heard of him at the time. He friends tell me he was the dad in Malcolm in the Middle right. a sitcom. Uh, I never saw that. They say he was pretty good in that role, but it was a a weak comedic role, apparently. And the studio bosses just didn't want to cast somebody without a track record in an expensive production like this for the leading dramatic role. And so they offered the part of Walter White to John Cusack. Oh, right. A very high-profile actor himself. He turned it down for what reasons, I don't know. They offered it to Matthew Broderick. He said no. Finally, Gilligan goes back to the producers. He said, look at this clip. It's a clip from the X-Files episode, some episode 20 years ago. This is our guy. And they finally relent. And the rest is history. He's a superstar. But he was in his mid-50s then. And if he doesn't get that break, if one of the two who'd been offered the role had taken it, and you know they're kicking themselves now for, for having turned it down, we never would have, I never would have heard of, of Brian Cranston, he would have been laboring in the trenches just like thousands of other really talented actors who never get their shot. So,
0: well, the sa- same same story can be said for the Harry Potter series, right? Uh, she was she was rejected by every conceivable publisher until i think a friend of her daughter or son read it and then convinced the dad right i mean pretty much the exact same story
1: right it, it's all it's always something like that now you could say oh they the series was so good it would have emerged somehow mm-hmm. well not necessarily right
0: so let me ask but, i'm sorry let me ask you this since we're yeah. talking about acting has anybody done any research Here's a hypothesis and if not, maybe something we can work on together. Uh, If you look across professions, I would expect that the luck factor, let's call it lambda, whatever that measure is and if we could measure it somehow, would vary across professions. So that something like acting would have a higher lambda than something like neurosurgery. So that if we looked at the whole landscape of professions, we would be able to say that this luck factor actually has much greater weight in professions A, B, C than in D, E, F. Has that been done? And is that
1: something? Uh, It's too late for you and me to do it because there's a great book. It's called The Success Equation, and it's by Michael Mobuson. And that's exactly his project. Ah. You know, you need a lot of data to tell whether it's uh, luck or skill. And uh, different sports, apparently, skill matters vastly more than in others. Chance events can can enable uh, the weaker performer to win quite easily in some sports, but in other sports, you have enough opportunities, you roll the dice often enough that the underlying skill level uh, sooner or later triumphs. So it's it's possible to disentangle it if you have enough data, yes.
0: Interesting. Michael Shermer, uh, do you know who Michael Shermer is? Yes, I do. Uh Yes. So so Michael Shermer, in one of his books, I think, uh, Why People Believe Weird Stuff or something to that effect, he talks about... Uh, the types of superstitious ticks that athletes engage in, and how elaborate those ticks are and it turns out that the greater the uncertainty associated with your skill so you 're a designated hitter in baseball then the the the, the amount of sort of ticks you have is greater somehow it becomes a way for you to master, oh, not master master in quotes or. Assuage this uncertainty. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was a very, very interesting finding.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's some tough psychology. You mentioned yeah, yeah. that people who succeed think they su- succeeded because of their skill. People who fail say, uh, "I was just unlucky." If if you unpack that, that's even adaptive in a very direct way. So so if you do something and it works out well for you, then you say, "Oh, I'm skillful." That means when the next opportunity comes along skill is a persistent trait after all, I should tackle that too. Uh, I'm skillful, it worked once for me, it'll work again. Contrast that with you try something and you fail, and you say, oh, bad luck. The next opportunity comes along, bad luck is not a persistent trait. Uh, I was lucky the last time, but here's another opportunity, I should try that. I won't be unlucky forever, I'll keep on trying. So, So these beliefs that people have very uh strong allegiance to they're 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 demonstrably false when you put them up against objective data and yet if you believe them you might do better than somebody who doesn't believe them i mean it's very easy let's just suppose hypothetically that religion is false that there is is no uh supernatural force out there Uh, Does it follow that somebody who believes there's a supernatural force out there will do worse than somebody who believes the truth? Uh, Again, assuming that the truth is that there isn't a a force like that. No, it doesn't follow at all.
0: Well, Blaise Pascal would actually argue from his his sort of original game theoretic argument that you should always believe, right? There's always... Hedge your bets. Yeah, hedge (laughs) your bets, exactly. Uh, So let's, let's, let's drill down a bit on the liberal versus conservative divide. And re- rename it Democrat versus Republican, because I wanted to get your take on this. So I, I've, uh, in several forums, I've discussed a study that was published in 2005 by Cardiff and Klein, and there have been other studies that have done roughly the same thing, where they look at political affiliation of academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in their case, uh, but I'm sure it replicates roughly the same across different studies, across disciplines. It's five to one Democrats, right? Uh, if you look at specific disciplines, though, then of course that number greatly varies so that the highest lopsidedness happens in sociology where you have 44 to one ratio. Uh, and here I have a great quote from an economist that I'd like to read, which I think you probably know. I love it. Uh, here it goes. Hold on. So the, let's see if you, you can guess who this was. The next time some academics tell you how important diversity is, ask how many Republicans there are in their sociology department. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, do you know, do you know I, who that is? I, I can imagine John Haidt, the psychologist, saying that, but no, I don't know who uh, he, he,
0: he, so. he Actually, he, he's going to be hopefully soon on my show, but no, it's not John Haidt. It's uh, Thomas Sowell, the, uh-huh. the economist. Yeah. Uh, now, So now, linking it to your academic reality, economics turns out to actually be not even I think it was 2.8 to 1 much closer to business to engineering to some of the natural sciences so how do you is do you have any sort of working theories as to why feels like sociology would be so lopsided whereas say economics it's starting to tend towards being more even
1: well, sociology, of course, is a field that emphasizes the importance of situational factors in life outcomes. So, yeah, you would you would be surprised, really, if if a th- theory that stressed the importance of those things as strongly as sociology has done over the over the centuries or over the last century, anyway, would not produce people who who gave special weight to, to external forces. Uh, Economics is maybe at the other end of the, the ladder. We, we emphasize the importance of individual performance and initiative and so on, all, all, all of which is obviously important too. But uh, situational factors we tend to downplay.
0: So, do you think that the, the causal mechanism is, is so it's not that the training in economics leads you to that particular outlook. It's that there's a self-selection bias that people who come into the game with that bent would, would prefer to go in one discipline more than another.
1: Nothing I just said would help you answer that question. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you you don't know which it would be. In fact, uh, Tom Gilovich and Dennis Regan and I tried to unpack that. When it that was my next
0: question, but go ahead.
1: <laughs> we, we, we know that Economists teach people that self-interest is, if not the only human motive, it's by far the most important human motive. And in the models, it's the only human motive, in in many of them anyway. And so the question is, does that kind of theoretical orientation influence how selfish people actually are in their own lives? And uh, in experiments, we found that uh, economics majors were much more likely to defect in prisoners' dilemmas than students who were majoring in other subjects? Was that selection or a training effect? We had two weak attempts to answer that question. One was we looked at the, the students in an introductory economics course in September when the course was just starting. Uh, somebody's uh, gotten billed for only nine computers. He ordered 10. Uh, does he report the billing error to the, the company that he bought the computers from? And then does a stranger report the billing error? Very, Vari- excuse me, variations on that theme. Then again in November, excuse me, in December, the last week of the term, we asked them the same question. We, we had their mother's maiden name on the questionnaire both times so we could match up their responses. The economics students got much more cynical between September and December. They, they thought it was much more likely that people would cheat when they had a chance to without any likelihood of punishment than they had when they first encountered that question. We did the same pair of questions in an introductory astronomy course, and we found that uh, for three out of the four questions, people actually got less cynical between September and December. So there was some weak evidence of a, of a training effect, uh, but selection, that's probably part of it, too.
0: Have you ever thought about sort of extending the time period of learning? So rather than be a semester, start off with an undergrad and wait till he finishes his Ph.D., then you'll have a psychopath on your hand.
1: Well, well, we did do (laughs) we did do a weaker version of that. We compared the defection rate in prisoners dilemmas of economics majors who were either freshmen or sophomores. Ah, Okay, and it was lower than the defection rate of, of juniors and seniors, upper classes. Actually, it wasn't lower. It was about the same. But that was in contrast to majors in other fields where the older students were much, much nicer when they were juniors and and seniors than they have been as as freshmen and sophomores. So there's a a humanizing trend that we see in other fields. We didn't see that in among economics. Right. Interesting.
0: Uh, So my next question, uh, I think you sort of touched on it in one of your talks. I think you were talking about the Darwin economy and you talked about how. Uh, sort of the history of development of uh, economic theory and how originally it was quite steeped in biology, which we'll come to in a second after, and then later it became very mathematical. Now I have a theory, which I I, I don't think I'm probably the first to mention this, uh, about why this has happened. It's somewhat of a psychoanalytic theory, and you tell me if I am uh, totally off base or not. So and I can link it also to similar trends within the behavioral sciences. Actually, let me start with the behavioral sciences and then I'll go back to economics. So, so I've argued in several of my works and several of my books that uh, one of the things that happens, say, in consumer, consumer behavior, you know, my field, and in behavioral sciences in general, is that we train people to be very, very good at doing science. So they become great methodologists. And there's a term from Robert Sternberg, who used to be the former uh, uh, president of the American Psychological Association. He talks about methodological fixation. You become fixated with doing good science. The ultimate problem you work on is utter bullshit. Nobody cares about it. But my goodness, am I rigorous. I controlled for this. I did an ANCOVA. I did a multivariate. I did this. But it's all bullshit, but it's good bullshit, okay? Uh, Now, we can argue that economists do a similar thing and the reason I think they do this and here's where the psychoanalytic part comes in is because ultimately they are insecure about their position in the pantheon you know of of sciences right so I want to demonstrate that I am an equal participant so I'm I'm no lesser than the physicist or the math guy and therefore I'm going to be a top methodologist whether it be through my math or through my experiments Mm -hmm. I do good rigorous science. Is there any validity to what I'm saying?
1: Oh, I'm I'm sure there is. Yeah, people often talk about physics envy economics, and what's clear is that if you're one of a pair of candidates competing for a job, it's very much in your interest to be seen as the more rigorous of the two, and more rigorous has come to mean more mathematically formal. Uh, And if if you accept that that's true, then the inevitable consequence of that is that there will be an arms race to become more mathematically formal than your rivals for the, the jobs you're looking for. And it's a small step from there to where the field ended up, uh, which is it's a field characterized by what Dick Thaler calls excessive formalism. Uh, he, he, he describes the excessive formalism section in papers. You know, it's obligatory. I once sent a paper to the American Economic Review. It had the idea explained in 12 pages uh, and then an appendix for those who were interested in seeing how it would work out formally. The referee wrote back, the editor enclosed a referee's report, tell him to scrap the chit chat and publish the appendix, which, (laughs) which, of course, I had to do. You couldn't turn down a chance to publish a paper in the leading journal, at least at my age then I couldn't. Uh, it, but it's nobody wants to take those papers home and read them at, at night. They're they're a chore to read. They have to master a lot of gratuitous notation. And we would do much better if we were just keeping our eye on the ball and wondering what's important. Uh, you you've got this insight yourself, obviously. But uh, we've seen some progress toward that lately. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's not as bad as it was 15 years ago. No, I'm I'm able to to get attention for pieces I write now that I think would not have received attention 15 or 20 years ago. So, well, some, the, some, some slow improvement.
0: They're, they're, I mean, to to couch it in the language of evolutionary theory, this sort of increased uh, sophistication of the methodology is a form of runaway selection, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. That, it's, that, like, that, it's like the antlers.
0: Exactly right. See, see, everything boils down to evolution. As I originally learned in... Dennis Regan's course. In case you don't know the story, but I think some of my viewers already know it. uh, And speaking about luck, uh, my original awakening to evolutionary psychology was in a first semester doctoral course that I was taking with Dennis Regan fall 1990. My uh, doctoral supervisor, Jay Russo, had suggested that I take his course and roughly halfway through the semester, he assigned a book called Homicide by Daly and Wilson, two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology. And... uh, as someone who wanted to study consumer behavior, I, I realized the the elegance, the explanatory elegance and the parsimony of evolutionary psychology. And right there I knew that I would I knew what my path would be. I would infuse, mm-hmm. I would Darwinize consumer behavior. And now of course the reality is that from a careerist perspective, that was profoundly risky in that I very much am not the regular guy who does the what the market expects of me now on the one hand i regret that because had i been a bit more strategic and careerist uh, maybe some of the gatekeepers would have at least sort of ticked some of those boxes okay. but on the other hand i wouldn't have been who i am had i not done exactly what my, the random combination of my genes yeah. dictated that i do right
1: you you you, you don't have all that many Good choices, you know. You can you can play the game and be mediocre at that, or you can do what you love to do, and probably you won't succeed at that either. But there's a chance you will, and if you do, how much more wonderful is that? If you succeed at something you love to do. There you go. All gatekeepers, um, listen to Bob
0: Frank. (laughs) So let. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Were you going to say something?
1: I I was going to say the the Darwinian perspective just offers an enormous advantage over what I'll call the naive Adam Smith's disciples' perspective. They say individuals know best what their interests are. If you just turn them loose in unfettered markets, we'll get the best of all possible worlds. Darwin saw that individual interests translated uh, into uh, common good sometimes, but uh, in many cases, there was no link between the two. In fact, they were often diametrically opposed. So I think Darwin had a much clearer conception of the relationship between pursuit of individual interest and collective well-being than, than uh, Adam Smith's disciples today have. And you know, the the runaway arms races that produce the big antlers of the elk, that's an example where if you're an individual elk and you don't have big antlers, you're a loser. Right, But if all elk have big antlers, then still uh, only a few get to mate with with uh, the the females that they're all pursuing. Uh, the ones with the biggest antlers get get that privilege, but the rest uh, do poorly. E- even exactly as would happen if they all all had antlers half as big. But the the downside is that when they have the big antlers, they're way more vulnerable to being eaten and killed by wolves. They they don't maneuver very effectively when they're in wooded areas, and so. You know, there's just no presumption that the thing that helps you as an individual is necessarily a good thing for
0: all of us. Right. Which, of course, that's one of the tensions that guys like, and I think you you know who he is, that David Sloan Wilson talks about when he's talking about uh, selection at the individual level or at the gene level versus at the group levels, which is now... Go ahead.
1: Those those levels of selection are in complete tension.
0: Right, exactly. Now, why do you think... I mean, there are some evolutionary principles that have been infused within economics for a long time, but typically they are in the context of modeling and you know game theory and population dynamics and this type of stuff. But an evolutionary psychological perspective where you're looking at an individual agent and looking at the evolutionary forces that would have led to him or her making the t- types of economic decisions they make is still not something that is very common in economic theory. Why do you think there's been that reticence? Because ultimately... It seems ludicrous to study anything involving biological agents without recognizing that they are biological beings.
1: Right, right. It it is puzzling. Uh, I I know that uh, I've talked to Danny Kahneman about this actually, yes. and and uh, I asked him several times what he thought about uh, the evolutionary origins of various patterns of decision making that, and he he just uh, was not interested in that question at all. Uh, he he uh, may have thought it wasn't necessary to ask why people had tendencies that they had or or that maybe uh, which was true certainly when he he and Tversky were starting to get recognition for their work. Uh, Darwinian uh, models were in bad odor in the social and, and the sciences and the humanities. You were, you were thought to be a a, a, a Nazi. Yeah, a Nazi, basically, uh, uh, which is a, a really odd perception, but not a completely mysterious one, if you look at the history. Uh, and so, you know, there may have been a strategic calculation, too. But I think uh, what what we've learned in the last few decades is that you, you really do need to ask, where did this motivation come from, if you're going to have any sense of, of what's what's uh, really driving behavior. So, so for me, my focus all along has been on, on the role of rank uh, in, in human behavior. Uh, it's, it's true in every animal species I know about that the, the biggest predictor of the likelihood that you'll project your stuff into the next round is where you rank in the group you're competing against uh, of your own species. Uh, if you're low-ranked, You're more likely to starve during a famine. You're less likely to mate successfully. There's just uh, no important outcome that seems divorced from where you rank in the group. It's not the only thing that matters, but it matters enormously. And so uh, if you don't have models of behavior that have rank as a central concern and what people seem to care about, you're just going to miss a whole lot of what's going on out there.
0: Well, I think the problem is, and, you know, obviously – who am I to critique uh, Danny Kahneman but let's take a shot at it. Uh, There is a confusion between proximate and ultimate causes and it's something that I've talked about often and for 20 years I've been hammering this point to my marketing colleagues and some of them are starting to uh, hopefully understand it. They truly believe that if you come at them from an ultimate perspective and let me just I know that you might be familiar with these terms, but for some of our viewers, they may not be. Proximate explanations explain how and the what of something. That's where much of science operates. The ultimate explanation is the Darwinian why. Why would it be of that form? And to understand any phenomenon, you really need both levels. They're complementary to each other. One does not negate the other. I think the problem comes actually from a cognitive bias where people believe that look, I've been successful for the past 30, look, I won a Nobel Prize, right, working at the proximate level, so don't come to me with this bullshit ultimate stuff, I don't need it, look what I've already achieved, and that's what happens with physicians, right, most physicians are not trained in evolutionary medicine, and certainly we've made a lot of progress in medicine without having to worry about the evolutionary roots of the pancreas, right, but I can make a very easy argument as to how there's a whole bunch of phenomena that you could not have uncovered where you're not coming from an evolutionary lens. Do you think that that's the key obstacle?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen vivid examples of that in, in medicine. The, the rapid rise of uh, intestinal disorders that we've seen in the last decades is, is now thought to be linked to the fact that kids are growing up in environments without enough germs in them at key stages of development. And some of the therapies for these disorders are to induce germs into the intestinal tract and try to stimulate some of the, the immune uh, processes that didn't develop properly during during childhood. And and so, yeah, they're, they're – oh, and, and one of the most stimulating talks I ever heard was uh, about the conflict between the mother and the fetus, this romanticized relationship.
0: Is this Robert uh, Trivers?
1: Uh, Trivers' work was the theoretical uh, uh, basis for the work. Uh, the the man's name was Haig. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Uh, and and he, he showed how all of the major maladies and, and complaints and dangers associated with pregnancy are a, a clear consequence of the arms race between the mother and the fetus for nutrients, the the fetus has chemical signals that it can send to the mother, send me more nutrients. Uh, if it didn't have those, then if it were in danger of getting not enough, it would it would uh, be a really bad outcome for the fetus. But the mother obviously knows that the fetus could demand too much, and so she needs some way of controlling those demands. And so the, the level of the chemical signals going back and forth is a, several hundred times higher than it would need to be if the only purpose of them were to communicate information back and forth between the mother and the fetus, so it's just it's a pitched battle between the mother and the fetus. And if you don't have that perspective, uh, and that came from Trivers's, uh seminal work showing that the the mother and the fetus share half their genes, not 100% of their genes, so. and so the optimal amount of nourishment for the fetus is more than it would be from the point of view of the, of the mother. So, ah, I'm sorry, so ma'am. you don't just don't understand that that battle unless you have that perspective.
0: And, and, and actually the example that I love to give when explaining the difference between proximate and ultimate very much relates to the example that you gave. And uh, the one that I talk about is pregnancy sickness, right? The idea that uh, the, the, the ultimate explanation for pregnancy sickness is that it is a mechanism to try to uh, protect the fetus against the possible ingestion of Uh, teratogens, food pathogens that the mother might have ingested, right? Therefore, the things that she's attracted to in terms of foods, the things that she is unattracted to in terms of foods, uh, her symptoms of nausea, her throwing up, all of these things happen at exactly the times that you would expect them to happen during organogenesis, which is when the organs are forming. And then we know for a fact this is not just some sort of theoretical esoteric argument we know that the outcome right the likelihood for example of having a miscarriage or having a healthy baby is correlated to how much pregnancy symptoms uh, sickness symptoms you've you've experienced the more the better so when you go to see your gynecologist and he or she gives you uh, a pill to to reduce those things from an evolutionary perspective he's doing the perfectly incorrect thing so there you go right uh But the problem is, I think, that most people have navigated through their scientific careers very successfully without needing that additional lens. And so it becomes very easy. Paul Paul Muehl once said, I think, something to the effect of uh, academia is ruled by ethological principles, right? Territorial defense. So that's what happens, right? Here here comes biology boy who might uh, invalidate 30 years of my work. I got to put up some walls to protect myself, right? Right.
1: You know, the the basic response to germs in the body uh, often is a fever, and the standard medical response to a fever was to try to eliminate the fever. We have drugs that have that effect. We have other, other things that do it, but, but does that help you rid yourself of the germs that led to the fever? That's still a question we're arguing about, but I think in, unless you have an evolutionary perspective, the question might not even occur to you. Uh, right. What's this fever for exactly? Now, have you,
0: you know, you were certainly one of the early folks within an economic tradition to be applying these evolutionary principles. Have you seen progress over the past 20, 25 years in terms of your colleagues in economics accepting these principles? Or are we still at the same point of sort of resistance?
1: Oh, no, we're seeing progress. Okay. Definitely, we're seeing progress. Uh, The early interest within economics in evolutionary ideas had had much more to do with complexity theory and and uh, a a lot of sort of macroeconomic mathematical uh, focus, Uh, the idea of what's the individual all about, what what are the forces that shaped motivation? That's that's a relatively more recent thing, but that's that's been growing in in popularity, too. No, I'm encouraged by some of the the changes I've seen just recently.
0: Oh, that's comforting. All right, so two more more broad sets of questions, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. I wanted to return to your uh, tax uh, issues, uh, and I wanted here to kind of link it to biology and uh, quote E.O. Wilson, whom I think you know uh, who he is, but maybe some of our viewers don't. He's a very famous evolutionary biologist at Harvard, and he said at one point, I hope I don't botch the quote, uh, communism slash socialism, great system, wrong species. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Uh, it's, it's great. It, you know, we are, as you said, a hierarchical species. Now, a very, very aggressive tax. And so this is now my segue to the tax mm-hmm. story. Uh, a very, very aggressive sort of socialist system constantly tries to create equality of outcomes right and so if i look at how teaching loads are allocated at our universities well darwin forbid that there should be some people who are more productive than others and therefore deserve to have less teaching because you should free up their time no no we should always try to create equality and of course in our very very punitive tax system in quebec where i'm left with almost no money i'm supposed to be sort of the success story of society uh, yet somehow i don't end up with much money at the end of the year uh, it's too punitive. So, well, first, what, what are your thoughts on this? Is there sort of a moral sweet spot? I'm not asking you to give me an exact percentage, but at what point does every dollar that I make, the, the percentage that you take from me become immoral? Is is there such a thought in your head?
1: Well, what we know is that uh, you you could never make a sensible case for equalizing incomes, that is to say, Everybody works. There's uh, income they earn during the day. It all goes into a pot, and then we divide what's in the pot by n, and everybody gets one over n times that amount. That would be a, a, a utter disaster. Nobody would work if that's what we did. That's the social
0: ants, basically, other than the queen.
1: You you can't do that right. in our species. Uh, we have we, you know a lot of people would work anyway, maybe on things they like to do. But you know if you're if you're ex- people to do chores that are unpleasant uh, to benefit others, that would all stop if we, if we distributed income in that way. The in- interesting practical question is, how much of a, a difference does there have to be between how much I get if I work hard and how much do I get if I laze around in order to get me to put out a reasonable effort? And the answer, apparently, is not very much uh, of, a, of a gap. Uh, I want to get ahead. If I can get ahead by a little bit, that's uh, typically enough. I've talked to uh, a colleague. He told me uh, that President Obama was going to kill us with these new taxes that he had in mind for us. Maybe He didn't say this, but maybe he thought it would be like Quebec if, if we let him do it. And I said, uh, no, I hadn't heard about these new taxes. Why are you so worried about them? Well, well uh, he was outraged that I hadn't heard about them. I said, the reason I I hadn't been following any reports about that is that it doesn't matter for people like us, you and me, uh, whether those taxes come online or not, because we've already got everything we need. Uh, He has a successful textbook. I have a textbook. In Ithaca, we won't spend all we earn, uh, even if we try. Uh, The question is, will we be able to get what we want? Uh, A house with a sweeping view of the lake, uh, a nice slip at the marina, whatever it might be. So, are you worried? I asked him that they're going to raise our taxes so much that we can't get what we need. Oh no, no, he knew that wasn't the problem. Well, what? That they're going to tax us so much we can't get what we want as easily. Yeah, that was exactly his worry. I said, look, what do people like you and me want? And and you too, God, I'm I'm going to guess you want. You already got everything you need. You want something special, the house with a view or whatever, whatever. There aren't enough of those things to go around. How do you get them? You have to outbid other people like you to get them. And if they raise your tax and my tax and the tax of other people like us, then those houses, the ones with views, end up in the same hands as before. So we could all pay a little more tax, I tell them, and we'd still be able to get the same amount of special things we want. uh, uh, Because special is just a purely relative concept. You know, you want your daughter's wedding uh, to seem special. That's a purely relative idea. You know, how much do I need to spend for it to seem special? Well, whatever is the custom here. The problem is that the custom here is now in the U.S. I don't know about in Canada, but in the U.S. it's $31,000 on average. Oh, is that, that. The, is that the number? Okay. That's the last last okay. year's figure. And in, in uh, 1980, not that long ago, in inflation-adjusted dollars, it was $10,000. Oh, wow. And... The reason it's gotten so much more expensive is that there's been just a a cascade launched by the the high incomes at the top. People at the top are spending more, that influences people just below them, changes their standards. And so you get this one step at a time cascade. Now to stage a satisfactory wedding costs three times as much as before.
0: Well, there's a movie. That's wasteful. Sorry, sorry, yeah. I was going to say that there's a movie that addresses exactly what you're saying. And I uh, reference it in one of my books, uh, "Keeping Up with the Steins." Are you familiar with that movie?
1: No, no, I've not seen that. And so it's a it's a
0: Steins. play on it's it's a play on "Keeping Up with the Joneses," where it's basically exactly the idea that you mentioned, but instead of it being for weddings, about bar mitzvahs. Uh, and so basically, there's sort of this runaway positional arms race of who's going to come up with the most lavish. A bar mitzvah is because you want to signal to everybody within your social group that you could afford it. And it becomes a hundred thousand dollar bar mitzvah. Right.
1: Yeah. No, that that's quite common. And I think the the expression keeping up with the Steins or keeping up with the Joneses uh, casts that in a prejudicial light. I mean, I think uh, if you if your daughter gets you have a daughter. I do. She's only seven, though. When she gets married, you're going to want it to seem like a special occasion. Uh, you won't be conscious, probably, of trying to keep up with the Joneses <laughs> when you do that. You'll just want it to, you know. You want people to have a good time, but you know, people will go away saying, "Oh, that was that was kind of a crummy wedding." If you spend a third of what everyone else is spending on a wedding, maybe you're not even thinking explicitly in those terms. Here's proximate versus ultimate again, <laughs> but that's what's driving it. So you're 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 not a bad person if you if you're influenced by context in your evaluations of the things that you think about buying. I mean there my my house in Nepal when I was in the Peace Corps had two rooms, no plumbing, no electricity. It was a great house right. uh, in Nepal. If I lived in that house here, it would be a absolutely unsatisfactory house. Right. Uh, my kids would be ashamed to let their friends see where we lived. But you, you know, if you if you saw the house I live in, You'd think it was an ordinary house, but my friends in Nepal would think I was crazy for needing such a, a fancy house.
0: <laughs> I, I saw a photo of your house in one of your talks. Uh, I don't remember which one, but you, you showed a photo of it. it. It's still pretty impressive by, by Ithaca standards.
1: <laughs> anyway, context matters. Yes. And, and uh, when I think of how have I done uh, professionally, I think that's the one thing I feel like I've utterly failed to achieve is to persuade my colleagues, at least a majority of them, that context shapes evaluation in the obvious ways that it does. Because once you admit that it does, then all the standard economic models prescriptions go out the window.
0: And so, so you have a very specific uh, suggestion or recommendation for dealing with some of these positional issues, uh, and that is to get rid of the income tax and instead uh, levy a progressive consumption tax. Maybe you could describe that for first- us quickly? Yeah,
1: it's actually fairly simple. You, you would do your uh, reporting to the tax authorities the same as now. You, you'd document how much income you'd earned. We could simplify that greatly, uh, but we ought to do that no matter what we do. Then you'd report how much you'd saved during the year. Uh, people do that now for retirement accounts that are tax-exempt. And the difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that would be how much you'd spent during the year. That amount minus a big standard deduction, let's say $30,000 for a family of four, that's your taxable consumption. Income minus savings minus 30000 You pay tax on that. If the number's small, the rates are very low. As that number grows, uh, the rates get higher and higher and uh, eventually they get much, much higher than the top rates on income. But Since once you're already spending $4 million a year anyway, if the tax rate were really high on the next dollar, that would be an incentive to spend more uh, cautiously on the next item you were going to spend. And if you and others did that same response, that's the magic of the tax, then the more cautious amount you'd spend on enlarging your mansion or throwing a more expensive party for your, your, your daughter's wedding would serve just as well as the bigger amounts would have served.
0: Have you had the attention or the ear of any sort of important public policy people to hear this Uh, stuff? uh,
1: uh, A high official from Quebec came to talk to me (laughs) and asked, could we do this at the provincial level? And I said, well, normally you have to be careful about being aggressive at the local level because people will move away if you try to tax them at Mm -hmm. the local level. But, But here it would be actually... The reverse, if you had a progressive consumption tax in Quebec, a smart rich guy would want to move to Quebec. He, right. would, he would say to himself, hey, I'll move to Quebec, I won't have to blow all my hard-earned money on wedding parties for my kids or bigger mansions so we can all be forced to entertain in a more lavish standard. We'll all scale back and we'll all be just as happy as before and that money I can plow back into my business
0: interesting proposal. Last, last question, and then we'll call it a day. I don't know if you've been following at all, uh, and I've actually been quite vocal about this space, uh, the political correctness and thought policing on campuses, the microaggressions, the safe spaces, the trigger I,
1: warnings. I know you've been the victim of some, some <laughs> of the complaints that have been rattling around. Oh, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm right in the thick, I'm in the trenches, uh, but uh, I dare say that they're picking on the wrong guy. When you've, <laughs> when you've, when you've escaped execution in Lebanon, a, a few uh, professional victims on campus is not what's going to scare me. Uh, but what are your thoughts on this? Do you, do you have you seen it in your professional experience as a as a growth movement at Cornell? And if so, what are your thoughts? Do you think the pendulum will swing? Well, any, anything that you have to add to yeah. the story?
1: Uh, there, there are a couple of people who've been writing very insightfully about this issue. Uh, one is Jonathan Chait. He, he's a, uh, you may have, may have come across yeah. his work. He's one of the most eloquent spokesmen for the anti-PC uh, movement here. And and um, recently, Barack Obama, Barack Obama yeah. has been a very eloquent spokesman against. The idea that we can just prevent people from speaking if what they say might be uncomfortable for us to hear uh, that 's a very undemocratic impulse uh, i 'm I'm very strongly uh, in their camp and and would love to see progress uh, against that that point of view continue although i 'm not sure we 've seen the the apex of it yet. right
0: so do, so but have, you, have have you ever been in a class? Where you've talked about something and some student came up to you and said, "Oh, you didn't give me a trigger warning or so on," or you haven't yet experienced it in your daily life.
1: Actually, I I feel like I dodged a bullet along the, those lines. <laughs> I I have, I I talk about the 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 mating market in one of my lectures. This is very dangerous, apparently. <laughs> I said, uh, "The coin of the realm is your number." Uh, so, you know we have. People care about how how, uh, kind you are, how healthy you are, how attractive you are. All these things matter. And so we make an index and you have a number. And uh, typically it's an assortative process. The tens pair with the tens, the nines with the nines, and so on. But the point of the lecture is that uh, if that were all that was going on, it wouldn't be a very successful system because uh, if you're a a 9.8 and you, and you pair with a 9.7, that's, you might say, good enough, you know, I don't, don't want to search all my whole life. But then along comes uh, a 9.95. Uh, you're going to leave the 9.8 and, and go with a slightly higher number. Then uh, nobody would be willing to pair off in the first place if they knew that the moment a faster gun came along. So that's why the number doesn't matter once you've paired off. You get uh, to feel intrinsically... Uh, linked to the person that you've chosen, and you don't care what the number is. Uh, totally benign view of how the process works. Vastly more humane than the the simple assortative mating structure. Uh, someone felt offended by that and went to a dean and complained. Uh, the dean came and talked to me, and I think I was able to per- persuade the dean that I had meant no harm. On oh, the contrary. My Uh, It would not play out well if an action were taken against me, uh, but unfortunately, one wasn't.
0: Wow. Well, I'm glad you dodged that bullet, and hopefully more professors will come out forcefully against this uh, very, very uh, troublesome reflex that many people have, which is they don't want to say anything lest somebody will be offended. It is contrary to the whole ethos of the free exchange of ideas. Are there any projects? I know that you just have your recent book release, so maybe it's not appropriate to ask you about your next project, but are are there any things that we may not be aware of at this point that you'd like to promote or plug before we uh turn it in
1: well i'm i'm uh the the next book i I write I don't think will be one that uh will be on popular bookshelves it it's uh It's really going to be a meditation on why. One of my economic heroes is, uh, has had so little influence on philosophers, uh, and that would be Ronald Coase, yeah. who taught us how to think clearly about externalities, uh, activities we do that cause harm or benefit indirectly to others. All the interesting moral questions uh, are of that form. I want to do something, but it will harm someone else. Is it okay for me to do it? And. Coase is by far the clearest thinker on that kind of a question, but most of the philosophers I talk to don't know who he is.
0: Interesting. So is this related sort of to the the deontological versus consequentialist ethics? Yes, exactly.
1: It's a a consequential focus, really. Uh, Coase would say, uh, you ought to be allowed to do it if the value to you of doing it is greater than the harm caused to others, because if you didn't allow it, then there would always be a deal you could strike that would make everybody better off uh, than you would be by not allowing.
0: So when would that be slated for? Have you started working on it? Uh,
1: no, I'm I'm out on the hustings yeah. uh, trying to sell success and luck. Uh, well, um, that's what I'm going to be doing
0: this weekend. I'm, I'm already about 25, 30 pages into it, but hopefully by the end of this weekend, I'll polish it off. It's a very good read. Everybody should go out and get a copy Hey uh, Bob, it's been such a pleasure. Stay on the line. Uh, I'll stay
1: on the line. We'll 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 clean up after. We'll wrap
0: it up. Thanks so much, Bob. Real pleasure.
1: My pleasure. Yeah.